You're listening to Vaporwave Radio. Vaporwave Radio is bringing you the final episode of our series, Comrades Read Together, discussing the book No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McLevy. We've broken this down into five different installments of hour-long conversations, digging into the details chapter by chapter of this entire book, and there's so much more even still to be said. The comrades joining me for my final conversation are Andrea Haverkamp, president of the Coalition of Graduate Employees, AFT Local 6069, Sarah Piscianere, the staff organizer for that same union, CGE 6069, and for the first time on Labor Wave, Michael Marchman, staff organizer for the Graduate Teachers Fellows Federation, GTFF, which is AFT Local 3544. The conversation that follows is very indicative of the times, organizing amid a pandemic in various industries across the United States. And if I had to provide a summary of what this conversation entails, it's really a meandering rumination on the subject described by Marx as the distinction between class in itself versus class for itself. So how can we, as organizers, cultivate a collective sense of power to move us beyond the point where history is enacted upon us to one where we are the active agents shaping history. McLevy's book provides a lot of clear answers to this question in focusing on the fundamentals of good organizing. And a lot of her claims are really quite straightforward when you just pick them apart. Her main arguments are Stop looking at the working class as irredeemably conservative and backwards people, and also as passive victims of capitalism. If we are to take socialism seriously, it requires that we look at ordinary people as the agents of revolutionary change, as people that not only have the latent power to take control over their own lives, but the power to potentially change the entire social order. And McAlevey says one of the fundamentals of getting there is to commit to a deep organizing model, not simply try to tinker around the edges of labor law and advocacy approaches that reform existing legislative policies, while those can be important, they're not sufficient, or try to substitute for real power with a mobilizing approach where you whip up marches and parades and certain direct actions that are one-offs at moving targets where the workers themselves simply become material for photo ops rather than the central agents realizing the strategy that has been put forward. Both of these models, the advocacy model and the mobilizing model, try to take a shortcut to power by substituting for the workers 
and also substituting for the time and deep patience that goes into sustained methodical organizing. McLeavy also puts forward that politics matter. The politics and the political ideas of organizers, as well as the leadership of unions, informs the strategies that we develop and also provides the vision for what direction we're even trying to head toward. As she puts it eloquently in the early chapters of the book, the existing leadership of organized labor are those who have accepted the existing status quo and the prevailing social order of power as inevitable, as something that will never change. She writes, they assume the rulers will always rule. And these are not the people that belong in the leadership of labor unions. And organizers on the ground, on the staff side, need to have a political consciousness that steers them in the direction of moving beyond constricting labor relations frameworks that, if followed to the letter of the law, would effectively destroy unions entirely, and also understands that workers have a lot of deep intelligence surrounding their lives and their working experience, and that deep intelligence is something that needs to be tapped into in order to generate effective strategies for taking power in the workplace. Some places I would love to hear more about MacLeavy's ideas that aren't completely developed in this book, and maybe they are in her later book, are over questions of the types of power that we really should be creating. For instance, in many labor circles, it is not uncommon to hear people wax poetic about the idea that you build workers' power to the point where not only can you overcome the boss, you can overthrow the boss and eliminate those people entirely from the workplace. In fact, take over the factories, run it yourself. We don't need any managers. We don't need bosses. Also, there's a political consciousness that can steer us away from abiding by the strictures of labor relations entirely. Maybe the mold of unions that's predominant in the United States, encapsulated by major federations like the AFL-CIO, SCIU, and the Teamsters, maybe these aren't the types of unions we really need anymore. Maybe unions like the IWW that provide an industrial model and a model that makes political choices to refuse to surrender the power over strikes, but also the refusal to allow management rights clauses into collective bargaining agreements. Maybe these are the unions that we need more of that would require the same methods that MacLeavy lays down, but methods towards a different horizon. So as I said at the beginning of this, there's so much more that we could say about no shortcuts. Michael, Sarah, Andrea, and I have a long, flowing conversation that I hope you really enjoy. You can go back and listen to every episode in this series of Comrades Read Together. We're also really pleased to have other guests enter the series, including Ellen Kress, former president of the GTFF, 3544, and Nick Dreger, contributing writer for Organizing Work. And if you like our content on Labor Wave, that includes conversations like this one, as well as others coming up on Amazon Capitalism with editors of the recent Pluto Press book, The Cost of Free Shipping, a conversation on the future of the IWW with Marianne Garneau and Nick Dreger from Organizing Work, and a futuristic episode talking about malls after the revolution with Sean from the Seriously Wrong podcast. 
All of this content is available for free for anyone to listen to, but this show is independently sustained through subscribers of our Patreon. So if you like our content, you can help us out by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash laborwave. There's different tiers for the level that you are able to commit to supporting the show. And at each tier, we have gifts that we give to our patrons. And we invite you on to our Laborwave Discord community where we stream films, talk about books, share content together, and just have lots of conversations. If you're not able to become a patron, you can also help out the show by sharing and liking our content. If you write us reviews on Apple Podcasts, that really helps increase our visibility so new folks can define, discover, and decide for themselves whether they enjoy the show. And you can get all the content from LaborWave dating back over three years now on our website at laborwaveradio.com. With that, we hope you enjoy this conversation on Comrades Read Together. There's a whole gender studies dissertation ready to be written about and critical race theory about how there's like a skin smoothing and whitening option that you can turn on on Zoom, as well as now like makeup clearly designed for women. Well, that's a great way to open up this uh, last conversation. Yeah. (laughs) No shortcuts. So let's get into this. I'm joined by some of my comrades here for another episode of Comrades Read Together. And we have the pleasure of concluding our discussion of the book, No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McAlevey, uh, which is a pretty big accomplishment for us right now. And I think in the pandemic, any accomplishment we should really celebrate with vigor. Before we dig into the contents, I want to give uh, our listeners a chance to get to know some of our new guests. Uh, You have probably heard the voice of Andrea Haverkamp. So I'll allow her to go ahead and introduce herself first before getting to our next guest. Hi, I'm Andrea Haverkamp. I'm president of uh, CGE, AFT Local 6069 at Oregon State University. I'm about to end employment and get my PhD, and I'm on the job market applying furiously. So if you have any leads in the Seattle area, let me know. Yeah, you all should hire Andrea. Uh, You will not be disappointed. And then we're also joined by Michael Marchman down in Eugene, Oregon. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Michael. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm Michael Marchman. I'm the staff organizer for the Graduate Teaching Fellows Federation. That's AFT 3544 at the University of Oregon. So just down the road from Andrea. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show for the first time, Mike. It's great to be here. We've been talking about it for a while. I'm glad to finally make it on. And we had the pleasure of being able to organize together into various capacities. I also, I'm going to telegraph a bit where I want to go in this conversation. But at some point, I'd like to remark on how much I realized I've been totally ingrained with McAlevey's style of organizing through a shared mentor that you and I have had of Jess Foster, yeah. a like total badass organizer that the, when I was reading this chapter in particular, there were a couple of lines in it that I realized like, holy shit, I say that all the time. And then I remembered Jess was the one that used to say that to me all the mm-hmm. time. And now I've just become a total acolyte. Yeah. And she worked under McAlevey yeah, for a while. In fact, I think McAlevey describes her in Raising Hell, Raising Expectations. McAlevey describes Jess Foster as a human encyclopedia because she can remember names. She can remember everything about she meets somebody and then weeks later, months later, she can immediately recall their name and their details. I wish I had that skill as an organizer. 
Yeah, I definitely don't. And yeah, I think it'll be fun to kind of talk a little bit about that in more detail in our conversation. But before we get there, let's go ahead and just give like a quick summary of the chapter, which is also effectively a summary of the book. So the way I would put it is that McAlevey concludes by reiterating her core arguments, which is that we have been on the retreat in labor organizing for the past 50 years at least. And that is both the Results of a aggressive boss attack and capitalist entrenchment, but also with a simultaneous retreat from what she calls deep organizing. Uh, and she focuses a lot on the things that we actually have the ability to control, which is the style and approach of organizing that we embrace. And in McAlevey's terms, the failure of labor leadership, the abandonment of organizing where we center the ordinary person or the organic leaders of workers as the centerpiece of our strategy and adopt what she calls an advocacy or mobilizing approach where we just seek backdoor deals and kind of try to circumvent the workers and like the slow grind to just do quick fixes is made the situation all the worse for us to the point where we can't even win recall campaigns against notoriously anti-union governors like Scott Walker and we can't defeat right-to-work legislation even in areas where union density is still strong. So that's how I'd say basically that's the summary of the chapter. Uh, what else did you all think should be named in there or elaborated upon? A few of uh, my favorite uh, things that I highlighted is her examples are not the manufacturing iron, uh, necessarily auto work successful examples, right? Like that is not the focus and she writes that maybe labor, many labor strategists, particularly men, can't see the need to reorganize, uh, I mean, organize outside into education and service as really the predominant driver of our economy right now. Uh, another thing she talks on is, is worker agency. And this kind of relates to something that's been on my mind a lot. Um, Sagar and Jetty, who is notably a, a conservative commentator, has been making a conservative argument for unions that why don't conservatives just embrace that this is people power taking it, especially in the public sector, away from the government deciding their conditions of work? Like this should be a non-issue. So really, I think it could really bring together because we have to bring together everyone, which is another theme she hits on it all in the book and just wraps up in that it's all in the workers in their community taking their power back through unions. Uh, with majority strike potential. And those are some things that I, I really liked in there. Yeah. Some of the things I, I find really interesting in this whole book and in this chapter is, you know, she really emphasizes the need for people to experience collective struggle, not just showing up at a, at a single demonstration or, or something like that, but like be engaged in like, I think she calls it like fierce emotional struggles that, are necessary to build like real strong bonds of solidarity and that, you know, good organizers, whether that be staff or rank and file union members, like good organizers help create those moments because without that, that kind of experience, people just don't develop the, the kind of bonds that are, are necessary to do the big thing that she's talking about, which is to actively try to shift class power substantially in the country and not just you know, kind of get along and improve conditions a little bit for people. But, you know, the the project has to be so much bigger than 
what so much of labor has been up to. And I think her emphasis on the failures of a lot of the labor movement to actually engage and rely on workers themselves to produce change and develop ideas, et cetera. I think that's a really a key for me, it's one of the most important kind of overall things that she has to say. And it's really influenced me as an organizer to, to think of my role as not doing the things that need to be done, but of helping to facilitate rank and file members and member leaders to, to take that stuff on and including, you know, the dangers that come with making mistakes, et cetera. But for me, that's a, that's the key thing that, and her linking of the, struggles in the workplace, the insistence on linking struggles in the workplace to sort of larger structures and social struggles that we're engaged in, I think is really key. And I, I think a lot of times, much of the labor movement uses some of those words, but doesn't actually live up to that practice. I 100% agree. I'd love to like dig more into that conversation around why do we hear so many labor organizers talk this talk? And not walk it, you know. Uh, but before that, I just wanted to introduce another guest that hopped on for our listeners. Uh, Sarah, is that you on the phone? That is me. Is my sound okay? Yeah, you sound great. Want to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Sarah Pitionary. I use she/her pronouns. I'm a staff organizer for the Coalition of Graduate Employees at Oregon State University. And a returning guest of our Comrades Read Together series. That's true. Late again, true to my form. <laughs> well, we were just talking about the the book, the chapter, giving kind of our summary and like key takeaways. Michael, a couple of things you said there too that I think were things that I highlighted in Circle that I think are important is that McAlevey has very clearly a disdain for strategies that are just about frames, like framing narratives and like kind of like corporate campaigns. And she talks a lot about that and basically pointing out like you can't undo 50 years of like a neoliberal attack on workers with just better talking points and better messaging campaigns. As well, you can't ever outspend your boss. Like your boss has more capital and they're going to like invest and dump way more into frames and like messaging that you just simply can't rely on that alone. And I think what you're pointing at is, you know, you need to go deep. You need to engage the workers and make them central is also don't adopt the lazy strategy of just thinking that the talking points and like the best messaging campaign is going to be your salvation. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, it's a lesson in, you know, the Democrats have been uh, sorely needing to learn too you know, that you can't just say the nice things and have a glossy photo and use some big data to figure out where you're liable to get the next, you know, the most votes and then expect that to be sufficient to actually change anything of substance. And they're bad at the frames compared to the Republicans. It's not like to credit the Republicans, but like, guess what? We still use words like the death tax, pro-choice and pro-life. Those are Republican frames. They get to frame the conversation on their terms and they're way better at it than than the Democrats, but then also like liberals in general. And I'd say the left is pretty bad at frames too. So I want to give you the opportunity to jump in here and like add any uh, perspectives to the conversation that we haven't been able to share yet about just the book and the concluding chapter. Yeah, I actually I just pulled the book back out because I was looking for a specific quote that I underlined with my fingernail. Give me a second here. I don't know if we're jumping the gun, but 
I think there's both like a lot of potential to adapt a lot of these lessons. You know, one of the the things is all of these took place pre-COVID. And I think there's a lot of potential to discuss the ways some of them do and don't map on are or are not practical for what's going to be not only 2020, but 2021. And recently, World Health Organization said fall 2022 might be when people under 40 are going to have access to a vaccine because of the way they want to prioritize rollout. And so we're looking at two years of this and the psychological ramifications and remote work culture and all of that moving forward. So I'm really excited to see how this shapes up, you know, beyond the Michigan grad workers strike, which is, you know, one recent example and the credible strike risk for Chicago teachers. And I think Rutgers was moving that direction. But yeah, that's something to discuss later as well that I'm always interested in. And that actually, that was the piece that I was looking for, Andrea. So she's got some this quote at the end, before the working class can shape the stranglehold of self-blame, they have to experience collective struggle. And I mean, if there's anything that we're experiencing right now, as workers and as community members, right, it is this really intense collective struggle. Um, and I think in our cases, as in the case of Andrea, right, a grad worker, union activist and leader, Michael and I as staff organizers of grad unions is campus communities right now are experiencing this collective, I, I don't even know if struggle is the right word, right? Like this collective uh, existential threat that's that's coming down on us by the decisions of university administrators. I think it's interesting because, you know, we're talking about like how difficult it is to be organizing in this space, the psychological toll, the uh, inability to do like real deep, deep relational organizing, or at least not maybe not inability, but the, the difficulty of, of doing deep relational organizing. And at the same time, there's this large looming threat that we're all experiencing. And I think Yes, it's a wedge, but it's a real difficult one to to galvanize people around and to organize folks through. I think that has a lot to do with the way that, you know, the pandemic is framed on a national scale. It's kind of like uh, passively accepted, at least by our, our current federal leaders. But I do think that we have the opportunity to do the work that Jane talks about throughout this work. We could make real, real big moves. Um, I think it's just seeing it through. I think it's just uh, embracing this collective struggle and then holding their feet to the fire. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot organizers often talk about the role of fear and confusion that employers often utilize to, to keep workers separated or weak. And right now, at least I assume that other people are experiencing the same thing, trying to understand all the complexities of what it means to work or not work, to be remote, to not be remote at a big university and all of the implications that it has on different classes of workers, on students, on university budgets and all of that, coupled with a, a like massively uh, massive new sets of policies and protocols for how to deal with it that are constantly changing that I think a lot of people are just kind of in a state of disequilibrium. What is the opposite of equilibrium? <laughs> people are like just kind of knocked on their heels because there's there's so much coming at people that it's really confusing to know how to respond. So we 
you know, we have members that are furious and ready to walk out the door right now. We have other people that are not so sure. And other, a lot of people are saying, well, I just don't know what the truth is, like what's really happening exactly enough to be ready to, you know, say, I'm going to put my job on the line, you know, to walk out of or something. And I, you know, I think there is tremendous opportunity in the moment. Especially when they feel lucky enough to have a job. Yeah, for sure. And of course, people are scared to just lose their jobs altogether. Yeah. But I mean, it's amazing because I think there's a there's a tremendous opportunity right now. Like the moment is there's huge potential in this moment. And some of that confusion and that frustration building is is probably useful in some ways, but only if we can really figure out how to harness it. And that's really tough right now. For sure. And to harness it before it gets out of reach. I mean, I look at it as like, Getting into that wedge is like a tiny, tiny little sliver of a door. It's going to be really, really difficult. But once we get there, the possibilities are endless. I mean, you know, I, I'm currently working out of a Eugene and the Coalition of Graduate Employees is at Oregon State in Corvallis. And it's something that I've been struggling with a lot lately, knowing that the only way we're going to get through that tiny, tiny little sliver of a door is if we have the community behind us. As if like the community is reckoning along with workers of these universities, there's a group reckoning with who's to blame. And I think it's just so painfully obvious. Like we all know it, we can see it, and we just can't fit through that that door. Yeah, I think the key to it is is going to be really, really broad coalition building and really testing members connections to their communities, which of course is difficult because a lot of folks move into the community and then leave when they're when they're finished with their education, but a lot of folks don't. So essentially it's like we gotta figure out who's got connections where, how can we leverage those to get us to the point where we can reach that wedge. Because once it's there, I mean we have all the power. I really do think it's possible. It's it's just getting through the uh the sludge of online organizing that's the biggest challenge, I think. So that very much aligns with McAlevey's point of view, right? That we have to bring the community into these struggles and see them as part of a struggle in tandem, a collective struggle, like you were saying. But, you know, the vantage point that I have, like when we talk about community, uh, one thing that just adds to the difficulty of the moment is how uneven the experiences of people, various constituencies within that community are. Like I'm talking to manufacturing workers that have not ever been at home. Like they've been going into work and reporting in person since March, you know, every day through the pandemic, taking these big risks. And then there's a lot of service sector workers too that have had this experience of going on furlough, then back into work. So we have this very bifurcated, at, at minimum bifurcated experience of people during the pandemic with some people having a very at-home, online experience while others have this surreal in-person level of work and struggle that they're facing and getting those connections threaded together where it was already difficult prior. Like that's just another, uh, I'm not helping the conversation be constructive here or move forward. I'm just saying like, it's even harder than we've expressed so far. And that relates to a lot of, I think, I wouldn't necessarily say it's class division, but there are privileges that come with a lot of either organizers or the unionized workplaces, maybe the benefit that the like literal health benefits of remote workers in that privilege. And it's often classed, 
I mean, it, there's an opportunity in that collective struggle, as we've seen so much with Amazon workers really rising up with with this, these opportunities for people who are in that collective struggle with COVID in their workplaces. But also, unfortunately, a lot of those service industry jobs, fast food jobs, Coles, Ross Dress for Less, you know, like like we need to get a lot of unions in those places because those are so unnecessarily fully open. There, There's an issue. Uh, and I don't necessarily know the answer, but I know that you as an organizer are working a lot from home and the people you're trying to organize, a lot of them aren't. And that's just hard to organize, not in person when your workers are in person. Sarah, you want to say something? I was just, I think I was just going to respond to you saying like you weren't sure if that's helpful in terms of a constructive conversation. I really, I mean, for me, I think at this point, any person doing social movement work needs some like level of camaraderie and how difficult it is. It's hard to keep your eye on the prize. It's hard to keep passion when things feel really, really bleak. So I was just responding to your, your like shit bleak. I'm sorry. That's not constructive with a, no, it is constructive because ultimately if we're all in it, to, like if folks engaged in this work are in it together, recognizing together, like it's bleak. This is tough. I feel better. I feel stronger moving forward in the work, not because, you know, it's news to me that it's bleak, but only because like, you know, I'm not alone. It's that collective struggle. And I, I think we all feel varying, varying degrees of it. Yeah, I was going to respond to to, I think to Alex, what you and Andrea both were sort of talking about, you know, realizing like, of course, workers are affected in very different ways, ways from this. And, you know, the three of us are all in higher ed, you, in, you, you know, do higher ed organizing work. And I think like it's really interesting at University of Oregon where we sit on this employee safety reopening committee, it's called, with all the other unions and the other sort of employee groups. And, you know, there's big differences, like massive differences in the impacts of how the university as an employer is responding and what different work workers need. And as Andrew said, like it's heavily classed. So, you know, we have a lot of people in our union that, and faculty who are able to work remotely reasonably well. Nobody loves it, but, you know, I mean, like are able to do it. And then, of course, we have all, all the classified staff, for instance, who have been on camp, most of whom have been on campus um, working since the thing began, who there is no remote job available for them. So and then there's, of course, there's other workers, too, but like within the just within a single employer there's like massive differentiation in terms of how people are experiencing the crisis and the employer's response to it. So we're trying really hard to figure out like, how do we advocate the, for the strongest levels of safety that we can, for instance, while also trying to figure out how do we make sure that nobody is losing their job or, you know what I mean? Or seeing their work hours slashed or something like that. That is a hard conversation we're having. And and sometimes I think the different employee groups are are feeling at odds with each other a little bit um, for perfectly good reasons, <laughs> you know, because the, the, the impacts are not the same. I did want to go back one thing that going off of what Andrea is saying, I think going back to our wedge as folks within, within higher ed, I mean, what your bosses are doing is further putting at risk every single grocery employee who's not currently unionized, every single Kohl's worker, every, I mean, it's different. If you go into a grocery store, I mean, for me and Eugene, I'm thinking like our local grocery store, 
you see people like doing, dealing with the pandemic in the best way that they can, right? Like trying their best to keep people safe, even Fred Meyer, whatever, Target, whatever it is, they're doing the best that they can to keep everybody safe. Your bosses are not, right? Like they are inviting virus into these communities and sending the, and those people are then walking into those grocery stores. I mean, it just seems like the folks on the other side of the table for us are such clear villains in this situation, I really don't think it would take, I think it just like it, it, no, it would take, it's going to take a lot of work to get there, but I think it will feel like an aha moment. I feel like it will, it'll feel like when you, you know, you get a fish on that, like click. Yeah. There's a lot of work leading up to it. You do a lot of stuff, whatever, but, but ultimately I, I do think that it'll be like hook on and people are very clearly viewing administrators public university administrators as villains and have every reason to do so. And it can even work to inspire and galvanize those grocery store workers to then start considering like, what can we do to make a, a safer place just within this store? How can we advocate for ourselves and utilize our collective experience? You know, the end of McAlevey's book, and I know that I like, I, I requoted what she had said about collective crises and collective struggle. I mean, I just have never seen any sort of collective struggle felt this deep this widely you know it's not a difference between wide and deep in this situation it is deeply felt by every person yes particularly you know immunocompromised folks and their family members particularly people of color with just the compounding crises particularly international students so there's some some groups who are feeling this pain deeper than others but ultimately like the entire community is in the same place and it's our universities who are the villains and we have so much power. I mean, you know, I was on I was on a call with our, our member, our recruiter, our member organizers who just jumped in, not as part of, you know, our member organizing institute program, but folks who jumped in to help are first year students. And their first questions are, what kind of collaboration are we doing with other campus unions? Which I know that that's like a, it's like a early kind of, yeah, that's our first question. But I think in this moment, particularly, not only do we need to be collaborating closer with campus unions and not necessarily to establish safety protocol, because of course staff have differing needs. They can't, well, we all want to be safe and keep our jobs. And for them, that looks different, campus staff, but not so much on like safety within the campus community, but galvanizing the community outside of campus that is affected by everything you move in. Move in happened. They did it. Uh, it's resulted in both of our campus communities getting put on the governor's watch list for COVID-19, massive spike. And if we can build those cross-campus coalitions that we've on and off been working on in certain areas here or there, but really utilize that not to change our working conditions on campus, but to bring in the community, it's game over for them, administrators. We can, I mean, I think that we have the power to rewrite law about how administration who makes the decisions on our campuses i think like now is the time we need to fully pull the trigger on them that is like exactly what some conversations we had this summer both with this national cross-campus grad worker solidarity slack that had hundreds of members both with different grad unions here in oregon uh some of us and the work of Reclaim University of Oregon, uh, what they're advocating for is 
why are these board of trustees handpicked and signed, given to the governor, and it's just a stamp, and they're Nike executives in Oregon, they're financiers and bankers, they are logging industry magnates. And what if we voted them in locally? What if it was a competitive race? What if there was had to be a primary election? I, maybe it is partisan, maybe it isn't. I don't know how the hell it works. But what if we just, there's that. And then this is also making me think of uh, McAlevey's argument that all these different craft unions or whatever you call them at a single workplace, we just need one big union per workplace. Like imagine if faculty, staff, grad workers, all of us were just in, we all work at this tiny city within a city here in Corvallis, Oregon. We're one union. We are united. We have 12,000 members or, or some ridiculous number. Let's throw undergrads in there too. We got 5,000 last we checked, just low paid hourly folks. One big union, I mean, the potential of that and then the ability for, I mean, that would engage the community. Like that would transform things. I was just going to say, Andrew, you're like totally reading my mind because that you all talking about this reminds me of this brief moment in the the book where McLevy does kind of sound like she's talking about the IWW model, just like one big union. She like outright says like no more craft unions. And I think that that label today doesn't neatly apply in the same way that maybe it did in the past, like the craft union label. But most of the configurations of unions, like the mainstream labor movement, is absolutely a craft union model. Um, it's all these like smaller bargaining units, even within the same workplace that don't organize industrially. And that's a real limitation. And that is something that, yes, the labor relations framework actually does encourage and facilitate the formation of craft unions more easily because that's like the framework that it tries to impose. But it's one that we can reject. There's political choices that we can make as labor organizers, as organizations that refuse these types of craft union models and do start organizing in this kind of more IWW, one big union type of framework that I think is really interesting for McAlevey to also put out there as somebody that has more proximity to the larger mainstream labor movement. You know, some higher ed education, I mean, institutions have multiple AFTs there for, for grads and faculty could hop those together too. You know, you could either... IWW ground up new movement, uh, strengthen that model. You could also, you know, we have millions of people in these giant labor unions. Maybe there could be some strategies, some creative, I wouldn't call them deals, but just practical sort of all the workers that are staff organized with X union and faculty with Y union, parent unions figure out change, not change hands. I don't know. There's some way maybe even like this bigger structure we have can have that reckoning. Just imagining like a fun, imaginative future. Just say to hell with our egos, to hell with our numbers. This is what's going to help the workers. Let them join together. Where does it make sense? There has to be a trigger for that though, right? Like, yes, we all recognize that we'd be way more powerful if we just bargained together. That's for sure. But we need that triggering moment. And what I'm, it's like, it's right here in front of us. We have that triggering moment. And 
collaboratively, I really think, yeah, between, I mean, you know, of course we're talking Oregon because we're, you know, we're organizers in Oregon. Um, But this is our wedge in time to really show that power, to execute that power on something that's like manageable, right? If we can do something that says there's a fundamental schism between a public institution and the privatization of that public institution. And the only way that we can address that schism is not only that every single union on campus needs to work together, but every single campus itself in Oregon needs to work together and we can make serious change. Um, Imagine, I mean, you know, we met with the higher ed policy advisor last year and talked with her for a good two hours about this idea of democratizing the board of trustees. Of course, she's a higher ed policy advisor to the governor, so she does not want to get take that power out of the governor's hands. But what she what she was open to is opening up the that bill, Senate Bill 270, and putting some parameters on it. Namely, you have to live within a 45 mile radius of the campus. Imagine the difference in decision making that those boards of trustees would have made had it been their community that was impacted. I mean, I'm not saying that like you get local leaders and some and they're just miraculously better, but I do think that there's a uh, an accountability by by proxy that we just don't have in our current in our current governance stu- governance structures. And in order to get that, we do need to collaborate on a massive scale. And once we do that, and we can achieve something big, that's when people start looking at their power differently. That's when people start viewing their workplace as you know a small city, like Andrea was just saying. Like that is essentially what we have. So why aren't we organized like cities are? AFSCME doesn't differentiate between different job duties or roles. They organize folks together. We can critique how that happens, but I think there needs to be a trigger point. I think we got it right in front of us. It's just getting there. Imagine if they also had to be alumni or work at the institution. Or have one of the other things that she was open to is they need to have a public service background. We can't have folks hopping out of the private sector and jumping into public service as if they know what the fuck they're doing because they ran a business. This is not a business. So if we have the, the higher ed policy advisor to the governor saying this, they're open to this. I mean, shit, we put out like, I, yeah, I don't want to go into tactics on how to make that happen, but possible. That's exactly the question, though, that I think, which is how do we do that? I mean, I agree that that is like that scenario of in single institutions but even perhaps across entire sectors that there be single unions that are that are representing all workers together and i i'm i agree that the there is a moment right now where we can where there is potential for big shifts in the way we do things but uh, we have to figure out how to do that work how do we start to make that move at all because I, we're so far from that to be honest that you know i think that the, the we have to be having, if we're going to have the conversation, we have to be talking about like, okay, what would it take to get to that point? What would it take in our context at universities to get the groundskeepers and custodial staff on the same page as tenured faculty members, right? Who have very different class backgrounds, very different lived realities from each other, also have very different needs as employees, right? That and I, this stuff can be overcome, but I think there's, we have to think about how to do that. And I think, you know, thinking through, for instance, collaborations across unions on things like, as people have mentioned, like the efforts to democratize boards of trustees, for instance, we know that would have a huge 
a huge impact, but that is such, that is a massive struggle to win right there. I mean, that's, you know, the governor has interests, but that is the process by which the institutions stay focused on market outcomes. And there is a tremendous amount at stake for people to change that. And so, you know, that's a, I think that's really an epic kind of a struggle that is something we can do and need to work on. Um, but I'm a little more pessimistic about the potential for that in this in this moment. Not to potentially make some moves and, and have some successes in that way, but I'm not 100% sure, for instance, that higher ed can do quite the same things that, for instance, K-12 has managed to do in terms of building solidarity across working groups and building community ties. You know, like one of the things McAlevey talks about in the book a lot is the emphasis on, you know, the, the long history, 50 year, much longer, but concentrated 50 year history of like hyper individual individualization. And when we look at versus collective sort of um, a collective ethos, and when we look at higher ed, there is on one hand, a collective ethos, the whole project is sort of rooted in some kind of a collective effort. But for instance, faculty and and graduate students are split between one project, which is highly collective, I think, in principle, at least, which is education, and another piece that is profoundly individualizing, which is the research component, even in collaboration and the incentives and the necessities that it, re- it takes to move through the, the uh, move through a career in academia requires you to be churning out hyper-individualized research projects one after the other. And so there seems to me there's like a, there's a discrepancy, like a paradox or contradiction within the academy right there in terms of thinking through like how as one significant institution that, as McAlevey points out, is is one that's really potentially powerful because of the deep ties that educators and education institutions have to communities. Like I've, I've been trying to think through like what is... How does that happen in a higher ed context when there are such stark class differences in the institution? And I think this deep drive, the primary driver is the individualized act of research and publication. Well, and, and not only that, also the transient nature of the workforce, right? For the, for instance, the majority of the workforce when you're talking about undergrads and grad workers are temporary by design. So I, I, I share your skepticism. But I actually wanted to like kind of add a different vantage point here too, because I don't look at this question, this like one big union question or this question about coalition building strictly on the terms of like higher ed uh, industries. I'm actually looking at it even amongst mainstream labor unions themselves. Like when you got unions like the Teamsters that focus primarily on logistics and like truckers, and then you got other unions that are focused on public sector and then others that are focused on manufacturing workers, and they can't get their fucking shit together and ever partner on any strategic organizing drives, like a geographical model of organizing that the Bill Fletcher Jr. advocates, right? Organizing at the scale of a city. How do we do that? How do we even overcome the egos of labor leadership of these varying unions and start acting more as a coordinated front that is the big challenge that I see. Not, and I think when you focus on the particular industry like higher ed, you can see a lot of the details come out. But then when you zoom out of that, it's like, it's way worse. 
Now, that's just something I want to throw out there. But uh, this is another question I just want to ask you all to kind of think about, and we can go whatever direction we want. One of the critiques that I've heard of McAlevey is about the kind of political choices up until a point. You build this power, but then there's this, and I don't know how much I agree with this critique, but I'm just saying like the critique is that workers build this power, they have all this agency, but then at the end of the day, they surrender it to like a progressive Democratic Party block to do the kind of final political push. And what you all are talking about, particularly when it comes to democratizing the board of trustees, like the the uh, bureaucratic body that basically governs university systems, in order to build enough power to get to the point where you completely bust that apart and reconfigure it and actually have a democratic board, why would you even surrender that power that you've built of workers to a political party like the Democrats or to an agent like the governor? Why wouldn't you just continue throwing away, shucking off that political order entirely and just creating a whole new power structure. So it's just an open question, but throwing it out there for y'all. Yeah, I I think this has to be the last, hopefully, the last federal election where we concede the lesser of two evil approaches will work for labor or will work for working people. I think that we need to have a critical consciousness to disentangle these movements from electoral politics, from conceding defeat to a lesser of two evils approach and rally behind who we need. I think if it, you know, if it fails, which it did and where we are, which is where we are, I don't know in the future. I hope this is the last time that that argument prevails. And in the future, we just, kind of like a supermajority in the workplace, we organize a supermajority of people for whatever reason to shuck off these parties. But And it requires us to confront the political media and polling industrial complex. It requires us to resist the way that McAlevey also says that unions are getting told by these big parties, by these uh, to get polls, to get data, to get analytics on all this stuff when it's about the workplace and about the community. You know, it's about getting, I don't want to say, but I know uh, a a rabbi I know was was brought a petition to circulate to support workers in a workplace and didn't share it with the community. Like it's convincing those people. But I, I hope that, I think that's right. But in the future, I think I think we have to call it quits on the current model. Absolutely. I mean, what is the current model, though, but a bigger version of what we've got within all of our localized spaces? Like we have an executive board that are elected. They make decisions based on what the members say they need to do. And if the members aren't activated and if they're not organized, then that executive board is going to make decisions in the best that they know how. Right. So I don't think that like a political leaders will either do whatever the hell they want because they can or bend to the will of the people who put them in the power. Um, so I don't think that it's like, okay, we've gotten here and now, and now, and I'm kind of going back to your other question, Alex, and maybe combining the two. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I don't think that it's a scenario where it's like, okay, now we've reached here this, this point and let's hand it over to a, a party. It's like, no, we're the party. Like let's party motherfuckers. You know, I, I think once people can see that their, that their collective power creates tangible change, they can continue to remain active and activated. But when we're looking, 
like, and I think this is, you know, the left in general, we need to both be looking long-term, long game, thinking long haul all the time, but still looking at incremental wins as ways to get there. And if those incremental wins are happening within the political system in which we exist, there's still wins because how can we make wins outside of where like the, the uh, board that we're operating on? And again, I, I, I don't know about y'all, but I've never seen a situation where crises and collective struggle was felt so widely and so deeply. And if McAlevey, you know, was it all right in her analysis that you have to experience a collective struggle? Well, shit, we've experienced a collective struggle across all boundaries. Of course, there's privilege that, ex- I mean, it's disgusting and daunting, the level of a privilege that exists and, and what that means in terms of people's ability to live or die. Yeah, like Trump, for instance. I just had to interject that. Damn it, why the fuck didn't he die? Fuck, I know. I did want to just uh, highlight something really quick that you said, because I think it should be the uh, new slogan adopted by any leftist parties, uh, the Let's Party Motherfuckers campaign slogan. That might actually get some constituents to vote for you. In Germany, there is a party party. (laughs) Die Partei. It's the party party. And they like, you know, they advocate for like free beer for all people and the satirical party. But it's fucking cool. And that's the thing. Like we are all, though it is bleak. Like we, you know, we started out by saying like, it's bleak. It's really hard to do this work. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just like pissing in the wind right now. It's bleak. So to counteract that bleakness, like we need to make assertive moves. We need to like, I don't know, in terms of tactics of how to get there, I have ideas. Michael, Andrea, we should, and Alex, yeah, we should talk about, about ideas of how to like break through the various, various divisive um, experiences within, you know, our campuses. Cause you know, Alex, you're also working on a campus right now to make serious changes and to those, for those changes to not just be like internal to the campus community. Cause the campus community is a city within a city. It affects everything. It is the heart of our cities. Uh, and we're like a main corollary of that heart, which means we can shut it the fuck down. Well, I was thinking about, you know, Sarah, you were talking about we're all sort of experiencing a collective, you said struggle, I mean, some kind of collective trauma, right, that we're all kind of dealing with that is like, like profoundly multifaceted and like terrifying, existentially terrifying, you know, but I think there's the question that sits in my head in the middle of the conversation is, how do we get people engaged in a in the struggle together in the sense of coming together with some common developing some common purpose some common mission and some collective set of moves to make and i you know i think that's to for me that that's what's the really the hard part right now like the, the potential is there that, but the question that i keep running into is like how do we start to create actual collective struggles Right. Like, how is it that we go about getting more people deeply involved in a struggle with each other that they a can experience that people can experience actual collective law, I think, and long term, I think matters. Right. Or or like struggle that lasts over time. That is not a quick win. Right. Like, how do people how do we what are the the issues? What are the and are the mechanisms for us to get into a place where people are having those collective experiences and then saying how to, okay, now how do we, how do we build from that? Because I guess what I'm trying to figure out for myself is 
where is our what's our angle like what's our leverage and what's our angle right now to get people there because we can talk about having everybody engaged in collective struggle but the question has to be how the fuck do we do that how do we get people engaged and what are the wins that we can that we can start to to kind of ramp up and the experiences that we can get and not just the issues but then the the on the ground practical experience how do you get people who are right now completely remote and separated from each other engaged in something that builds solidarity on the kind of scale that we need to actually shift class power yeah i i agree the issues are there like the organizing is there i think part of it is we have created the idea that labor is not the existential threat of climate change that labor is not defunding the police. I mean, but that that was there, like kicking cop unions out, like that was there. It's strengthening those bonds. I agree. It's 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 hard to to figure out how we explicitly connect the link, especially when you hear the bunch ballyhooed argument that labor can't be pro climate change. We have we have to just get knee deep in these multiple struggles, and have us all. Like people have been saying, like one big force, some achievable wins are out there, abolishing fossil fuel subsidies, shutting down factories, right? Like we could shut down some petroleum and manufacturing fa- factories, but that's going to require, for instance, AFT or a local community or, or forcing the hand of the government to give people a living wage. And then it's connected to everyone needs the human right to eat and be housed. It's daunting that the struggles are are there. It's hard to connect them all together, which in some ways necessitates them being separate. It's a chicken in the egg. It's it's difficult. You know, something that I think um the question of like what's our angle? What's our entry? Like how do we start connecting? Like what I think it sounds to me like you're asking Michael is like, how do we make these struggles intentional rather than there's things that we ex- are experience, you know, rather than like experiences that are imposed upon us. And this is one of the places where I actually think the labor organizing model has a lot to offer in the simple one-on-one conversation. Like I've been finding it surprising and like interesting how much immediate empowerment workers feel as soon as they learn the structure of an organizing conversation. And how to go about talking to their coworkers in ways that are with a focus and with an intention rather than just like kind of ambling around in the dark, right? But there's also something to it that I think like, so I'm, I maybe I'm like a little weird about the, how I approach one on ones, but I never deviate from the exact same structure. I act like I know nothing. I, even if I know things about the person, including their last name or whatever, before I talk to them. I know zero things about them and I make them like tell me like my own, like all of their issues and get the like paint this picture, get them agitated, do it, do it the way that Mac Levy also advocates. Right. But in that experience, I think that there's something very therapeutic. I think that like the union one-on-one conversation has like a, dim- a dimension of catharsis for workers when you're able to relate to people and relate at that level of like, what are you experiencing right now? What are the struggles you're dealing with? What are your grievances? And give people the time and space to actually be heard and recognized. You come out at the end of that conversation in a completely different place. Like uh, the advice that I'd gotten from previous organizing mentors is like, 
you're feeling unhappy and frustrated, go talk to workers. Like go have a one-on-one conversation with the worker. And that is like my, that's my uh, anecdote for depression sometimes. Getting me out of my funk and out of my moods. It's having a one-on-one. And a lot of times it's about the other person. So I actually think that like the fundamentals, getting down to the basics and just like scaling out these conversations, like go dig in, get deep and like have conversations with people. That's like, I think that's the first step, right? That's the angle. Uh, and then obviously have a vision and uh, like become those architects that can put something bigger together around that. But the basics seem like they still apply here. I think they totally apply. But like you said, like that's the first step. And then what do you do with those issues? Right. Like, yes, we there's the architect, but it's also I mean, we're all here because we we believe in every person having dignity. What does dignity mean? The ability to choose to decide for yourself. And I think when we look at our like in terms of our long haul, our long game as that, I want every single person that I work for to, to be able to decide for themselves how form their work, what sort of work they perform whether they live or die, that sort of stuff. Uh, And and that's in the context of COVID, not generally, obviously, we don't get to choose that piece. But that's, I mean, in terms of wins and where we're gearing our wins, it always has to be towards folks being able to make decisions for themselves, not being told from a higher up authority, from a boss, you have to do this this way, um, particularly when doing that that way is antithetical to the work they're doing and their ability to be safe while, while performing that work. Yeah. So, I mean, in the context of our campuses, who's making the decisions for our campuses? Long haul game, we're making the decisions for our campuses. Workers are making decisions for the campuses on which in, in which they work. We're so far from that, but not really. I also I'm like, I think that the way that George Floyd, right? How many George, George Floyds happened before George Floyd? A lot of George Floyd. Like there are so many people since BLM started years and years ago who've been brutally murdered by police. Midst of this pandemic, when people are like fully fuck it, it's different. Things are different now, and I think when you give people the opportunity to fully say fuck it, I'm going for this, and I'm going to make the changes. They do. They activate in an amazing way. It's just what are we activating folks about? Are we activating them about making decisions over their own lives? That's where we get deep, deep changes when people can actually imagine. A different, better world for themselves. Can I follow up some on something you were saying, Alex? When you were talking about the importance of one-on-one conversations, and a, a thought that that's sort of triggered in my head, that's been on my mind a lot lately, that I I think is relevant, and I don't know if I can see if I can put it into the words that I'm I'm looking for. Doing what you describe there, a, a one-on-one conversation that you know, starts from a place that like, okay, I'm going to assume I don't know much about you. Tell me about you. Tell me what you care about. Tell me what matters. Tell me what your life is like. Tell me what work is like. Tell me how this problem is affecting your life. I don't think we're very good at that. And I think, and part of what I'm getting at here is that in a moment where there is so much that structurally that fundamentally needs to change, and where I think many of us feel like it has to start to change very soon and quite quickly because existential doom is on the horizon. Fascism first and then ecocide second, you know. But I, what I'm trying to get to is like thinking about how we organize, about organizing uh, versus is not the right term, but like uh, 
successful movement building and organizing that brings people in that in in which we're all learning from each other genuinely learning from each other versus our sort of political rhetoric especially those of us who are uh, pretty far on the left and are imagining and believe in the necessity of, of profound transformation in society and i worry a lot that what i see from from comrades and friends is uh, often a leading with the political rhetoric and not leading with the openness um, an open, honest effort to to learn from people. Like we, yes, we all have our political orientations when we go into things, and we're trying to accomplish some stuff. But I, you know, a lot of times I, I find myself feeling frustrated because people who I'm in in full political agreement with are leading so strongly with the political edge, the that they are in fact preaching to people and preaching to people about how important it is to get organized and not doing the actual work of having to learn about people adjust your own thinking much less hope you know that they're adjusting their thinking and think about like how do we build a movement that gets together because huge numbers of people in this country and elsewhere are are desperate for change and many of them are desperate for deep structural change but I don't think everybody is in, we're not all on the far left yet, right? Um, and, you know, I think there's a great, thinking of the book Hegemony How-To by Jonathan Smucker, right? And I don't know if any of you have read that book, but one of the things he talks about in there that really spoke to me was he talks about his experience as a, as a radical organizer for many years, a couple of decades, and how he, he and his comrades desperately wanted to change things, but they find, in retrospect, he finds that mostly what they were doing was sort of posturing. They wanted change, and they were they weren't doing the actual work of building community. That means interacting with people that don't share your views, right? And figuring out a how do I move them a little bit, and b how do I learn something, and c how do we deal with our difference but still try to put it into some uh, into some common direction, and. You know, that's something I, I'm not convinced we're doing a good job of collectively right now. I actually think we're doing a lot, perhaps more yelling about the scale of the problem and the and the scale of the solution that is needed before we have brought we have brought people along to the point where they might listen to that. You know what I mean? And take it, take it to heart. And of course, a lot of people are ready to do that and think, think. I'm grateful that that we're in that moment where people are being profoundly radicalized. But what I'm trying to get at here is sort of rooted in my question about like, how do we build a sufficient mass movement that can actually shift the balance of power in this country? And I don't think just declaring that we need to be radical, 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 radical has the effect of creating the radical change that many of us want. Exactly. We are not going to get everyone into an ism on the radical left to feel that that's something that they can shift after generations of other isms into that that day, that mindset, and that reliance on an ism instead of an issue or a party instead of an issue. But along the party terms, I mean, Nina Simone from the Sanders campaign Wait, 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 wait. Nina Turner. Nina Turner. I am so, so, so sorry. I, I, I have not had a lot of sleep. Um, 
Nina Simone's great too. <laughs> yeah, they're both wonderful. Yeah, really, really great. I am so sorry about that. Um, has been advocating for um, a working people's party, and that's been brought up all the time. But just really trying to break part of this right left. We have to be far left is an American two-party system framing of every single issue where it gets divided into this binary when we got to do away with these binaries. And same within our unions. You know, we've struggled with whether we endorse or don't endorse political candidates. And there's people who identify along these two binaries and it gets thrown into this weird spectrum of centrism, which I don't think is like our thing. But, you know, it it is, uh, there's nuances to it, right? Someone can be, anti-gun but pro-states rights and uh, in these weird issues and it, it it requires uncomfortable conversations and it requires perhaps joining together and breaking bread with people very different from you over some really intense things but through nurturing and friendship we might get there as a movement rather than trying to get everyone into black block i don't know if that is a weird tangent but yeah, we got to break that binary. No, I think you're totally right. I, I agree with both of you a lot. This resonates. And I agree, like, from my experience, we're not good at one-on-one conversations, not of the type that I was talking about before, where you go deep, you assume nothing, you learn as much as possible. But there's also a different kind of strain of this that I've seen that's not necessarily like leftists being guilty of it, but it's a lot of like senior labor leadership being guilty of this for different reasons. And what I'm, I'll be more concrete. I have definitely heard and had it implied that you don't talk about political substance with rank and file workers and you avoid conversations about strikes. And I think the assumption is this, that like leftist ideas in general are not popular amongst ordinary people or that they're frightening or that they're scary. So it's kind of a different way of like disrespecting the collective intelligence of ordinary people or the ability for people to connect dots for themselves, like come up with their own analysis of issues. And that frustrates me, quite frankly, I think a little bit more, because I actually think that that's the more predominant attitude and approach is the one that is like, you know, you're a union organizer, you go talk to rank file workers, and your message is kind of in a weird way, hey, we're going to change things without changing things. Don't worry. Nothing, nothing big or dramatic is actually going to happen here. Right. You won't have to take any big risks. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, people are talking about strikes. Don't worry about that. It'll never even happen. Like these are kind of the messages that we get. And like, I I totally do not talk that way to workers. What I like about McAlevey so much, what I've realized that as I'm reading this again and revisiting it, how much I've been trained under a McAlevey approach to organizing is that she clearly has a deep respect for ordinary people and has a deep belief that people can come up with an analysis on their own with some guidance and mentorship and help that's not like dictating to them the correct line and the correct ideology, but is basically helping to provide clarity over the ways that they are being dominated in their workplace, in their community, in their country, in the globe, right? And that she clearly believes like workers and ordinary people in general can get there when they're treated with dignity and respect. And I agree, we're not doing that enough. And it, it looks different for amongst different people. Lefties are bad at it. Mainstream labor unionists are bad at it too. It's kind of laughable to me that like strikes are seen as a leftist thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, like that's funny. I, it's, it's like, I, I laugh and 
it makes me laugh to think about that fact. I mean, one of the good things we have going on our side right now is a deep distrust with the quote unquote elite, right? I think that, you know, I know I'm kind of going back to the conversation that was happening earlier, but the, the, the left versus the right, like that is just another way of dividing, and we all know this, of dividing working class power when you have to choose sides. Uh, and when certain tactics are viewed as inherently coming from a political perspective and not just like how we win, I think that those convert like you can you can quickly navigate and flip and reframe that conversation that you have with someone who sees strikes as a as a leftist thought and really leverage this distrust, this important distrust with the elite. I mean, for me, like I grew up in bumfuck Wisconsin. Like I'm not. Uh, I actually tend to feel more comfortable with with folks who are not leftists than I do with leftists. You know, the the like it's kind of exhausting to be in those circles all the time in leftist circles and leftist spaces. I mean, I love it, but it's also there's just like a it can be draining. I don't know. I'm I guess I'm kind of going on a rant right now. So please don't put this on your podcast. Um, well, too late. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just talking shit about the left right now. And I feel like oh, that's not the best thing. But, I, you know, it's like we have the left, we have the right. And in the middle, there's a sinkhole. And guess where we're all going to go if we can't get our shit together down into that hole. And it's not going to be it isn't currently pretty and it's going to keep getting uglier, you know, in terms of like beating fascism and ecocide. I again, I think that it's obviously I, I ebb and flow with this. Some days I'm like, we're fucked. I don't even know I'm doing this work. And other days I'm like, what other work would any person, should any other, any person be doing right now than this work? Um, and I guess in this conversation, I'm on the, the, the latter side in that having that shared experience in the workplace, whatever it may be, is the only thing that can bring together those two quote unquote sides, which we know are manufactured by the elite to keep us divided. Ultimately, like, you know, it's deep, deep organizing and it's getting folks towards wins that actually change their lives. Not even, you know, the small wins on particularly the pandemic, like they're good health and safety protections. Those are good. Those are wins. They matter. They affect people's daily lives. But like big picture stuff. How do we get people like, you know, we're here for worker dignity or or human dignity. And to me, dignity is all about being able to make a decision for yourself. Uh, Our current system doesn't set that up, whether you're for you, whether you're on the left or the right. To go back to what you were saying about right, the left, right, right. There's this conversation, various opinions about it, but there's this political think duo, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty. They're both trying to just center themselves as not really agreeing with really either political party, but you know, that there is populist unrest. And they had on this author, Michael Lind. I kind of want to read their book. They're a conservative writer, but part of it, we need to engage and see if they have some good points that we can break common ground with and push towards breaking that political binary that a lot of people profit off of. They have this new book called The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. I mean, there's a conservative argument that there's this managerial elite that's out of touch with individual working people. And they're not arguing against some sort of communist like that. They got the same enemy, the bosses. Uh, They have this talk called why conservatives must care about unions. I think that's cool. Maybe there's some commonalities kind of like Trump brought in the QAnons into the political sphere. Maybe 
we can sap from that base working class people frustrated with the managerial elite and their entanglement in the political process. And there was a poll recently that 65% of Americans approve of labor unions, right? We, we just have to harness that. It's, it's, it's there. It, and like you said, that deep organizing, but yeah, I mean, so that's a book that I want to check out. If anyone's read Michael Lind, the new class war against the managerial elite, let me know here. Let me know in the labor wave discord. I want to hear about it. I'm strapped for cash. I ain't going to buy it, but I'm interested. Well, thanks for plugging the labor wave discord too. You know, I do think it's an interesting, maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but it is kind of an interesting question to ruminate on. Like, why are there some, although a small minority of voices, but voices on the conservative side of the spectrum calling for an embrace of unions? And something that I think, like, this is just kind of my impression of it from a distance. I haven't really tried to engage too much with conservatives talking about unions. But I do think it's an interesting moment where this 50-year kind of concentrated history of the boss's offense against unions has had the effect of creating unions in a particular mold. And I think, Andrea, I know I've shared this sentiment with you in the past, but my, my view, my simplified history of labor unions in the United States is that there's a left wing and a right wing, and the left wing was defeated and is still experiencing the historical defeat of the right wing of the labor movement. Today's mainstream labor movement is essentially a conservative union attitude. It's they're liberal, I guess you would say, these labor leaders. But when it came to the labor movement itself, they're the conservative voices. And their paradigm of unionism has reigned as the primary paradigm of unionism for at least the past 50 years. And what some of these conservatives are seeing is like, hey, you know what, collective bargaining, some of this kind of managerial, you know, backdoor deal making and stuff, that actually helps efficiency and productivity. And maybe we should actually like keep it a little bit intact. I think that that's kind of what they're trying to embrace is like getting invested into the conservative viewpoint of unions. And I don't know, I'm a little bit concerned about whether that becomes a more popular call because how is that going to help the labor movement at large go in the direction that I think we all know it needs to go in, which is more for political militancy. So anyway, that's probably a tangent. And you know what? Let's not talk about conservatives too much on labor. I think uh, this conversation has been really good. What I want to do is bring us to a conclusion here, because I think with you comrades in particular, we can talk forever about a number of these topics. So coming back to the book, since this is our last episode on No Shortcuts, what I thought would be fun is to ask each of us to go around and just share kind of our favorite insight from the book, one of the things that we're taking away the most with us, or, the, or maybe even the question that we're leaving with as we finish and conclude this series of conversations on No Shortcuts. So if anybody wants to hop in on that, I don't actually have a thought in my head yet about what I want to share. <laughs> I I think for me, uh, it was right in the beginning when it was breaking down that organizing and mobilizing are two different things. They are important sides of the same coin, but it's not the same thing. And I still think about that. Like, is what I'm doing organizing and or mobilizing? How do we differentiate that and engage in that right now when our labor union can't exactly go physically to another place, to these other issues that matter to the whole worker, 
So I'm thinking a lot about that distinction and how to organize and mobilize in this world. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of in the same, in some ways, I'm in the same camp as you, uh, Andrea. Like, I think that that just core lesson that like laying out of like, what have we actually been doing? And is it organizing? And is it effective? And the answer predominantly is, is no to those two questions. So what does it look like? I also think that there's um, the title of the book is really, really smart. It is what, you know, I have used that phrase so many times with, with members and with colleagues, but like the notion that to build the power we need requires careful, patient, systematic, strategic work that we can't get to through shortcuts. I think is really is really very powerful. I know it's it's simple. It's the title of the book, but for me, that's that's really been a, I think, really useful. A couple of other things that I think are interesting. I don't know exactly where I stand up, but she her emphasis on super majority strikes and super majority actions, I think is very interesting because it really makes us think about how we bring the overwhelming majority of our colleagues along with us and not declare upfront just, this is what we're doing. Are you on or are you on board or not? But like, and not doing the thing until we have got almost everybody. <laughs> That's hard. That raises the bar. But I think, you know, the, the power of those kind of actions is just so much greater than when we move on our instincts, but haven't successfully organized the vast majority of our colleagues. And then I think the other thing that I think is really interesting, I don't know that I have a solid opinion about it, but I think it's a really interesting idea that she emphasizes, like thinking about education and healthcare as particularly critical sectors that we ought to focus on. I think that's true. I mean, you know, there's the broader question, like, how do you and what does it mean? What are the implications of saying we are going to emphasize and focus on these particular areas because strategically we think that we have the most to gain by succeeding in these areas? But what does that mean for the broader project of the labor movement that's not all rooted in those sectors? But I think it's very powerful. I think she's right that you know, that is those are two sectors that are, at least in the current moment, inseparable from the communities in which they exist in a way that, you know, most other kinds of jobs just don't have an inherent tie to the community in other than, you know, people that work at the place or in the community, but, you know, schools, universities, hospitals, clinics, nurses, that's all rooted. Those are, those are institutions that are rooted in the building up and the strengthening of communities explicitly. And they can't just be offshored easily. That has gotten me thinking a lot about strategically, where do I think we need to go as a movement? I was going to, you know, take the easy shortcut and say no shortcuts <laughs> also, but I, I did. And uh, I guess to take it a step further past no shortcuts, my question is like, where, like what shortcut to what, where are we trying, like in terms of the labor movement and, and our power, obviously there's like major existential cri crises Everyone in this room, in virtual room, believes, that's why we're doing this work, I'm assuming, believes that the only way that we can actually fundamentally defeat the existential crises of fascism and ecocide 
is through working class power. Can we get there? I, I don't know. I guess we have to. And it is a long haul. And I think going back to these existential crises, right, there's no shortcuts, but ultimately we need to get there quick. We have a timeline, a, a short timeline. I think what everybody has shared has been really great. You know, I think there's something interesting that this is kind of like zooming out of the conversation a little, but just knowing each of you individually and together. We've mentioned this a couple of times, but we've all come to the labor movement for particular reasons. For me, it was an experience of growing up working class, raised by a single mom, and and just feeling incredibly alienated. Like, this is how I go back on it. My life changed in a lot of ways, not from reading theory um, necessarily, but there was a profound moment of like recognition when I read the book or the short story, The Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. But it wasn't just reading the short story, it was hearing somebody talk about Marx's interpretation of it and all about alienation. And I was like, this is me. I'm Gregor Samsa. I'm like totally fucking just making pizzas that I don't see the end result of. Like this, it's all meaningless. So this triggered for me a, a political consciousness and development that has led me to the point that I'm at. And I know each one of you is also a person that has your own narratives, your own stories of how you got there. And we're totally just ordinary people. We're ordinary people that are doing a lot of deep analytical work, thinking about strategies for overcoming capitalism. And I, what I take from the book and what I take from my own life lessons is that there's a capacity for every ordinary person to do this work. We do have to get there quick, but I think like focusing on the fundamentals and going deep with each individual person you interact with and in interacting them with the full assumption that this is a potential revolutionary agent. That is like the framework all labor organizers need to adopt. Uh, and that's the attitude. And this book just kind of keeps reminding me of it. And it also just this is a, a different kind of note here. But rereading this book makes me realize that I'm like totally just been indoctrinated by Jay McAlevey. Like all these lessons, I keep saying all the stuff in the book. And I didn't realize that I was just parroting her words. So kudos to uh, my organizing mentor that I had the pleasure of working alongside, Jess Foster, because she was the person that really whipped me into shape organizing. And I know that you all have got the pleasure of working with her too. So those are the things that I take away. The other question that I'm left with is, how do we break out of the labor relations framework that's just got a stranglehold on like mainstream labor unions right now? We have to get rid of legal strategies towards power, the shortcuts of legal strategies. It's not going to work. It's not sufficient. Labor law does not punish bosses in the same way that it punished workers. And I want to know if these methods that McAlevey champions are the right methods to busting out of those frameworks. So maybe we can have another series of conversations about this. But for that, I want to thank you all for the time that you've spent in this conversation. This series has been really enriching. I hope folks get an opportunity to listen to the whole thing at home. And I just want to say thank you to my comrades on this call and in life for being willing to engage with these big, big topics and big questions. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, Andrea. And thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Let's party. And great. Thanks a lot. Nice to talk with all of you. May, may a thousand autonomous zones pop up.
Walk on to town.